It's Friday, January 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The CIA has issued an interim report saying that they found no worldwide campaign by any foreign power that was behind the mysterious Havana syndrome. While another report has said that a directed pulsed radio frequency could be the cause, the CIA said that most incidents could be attributed to pre-existing medical conditions of those affected or environmental factors. Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more on Havana Syndrome. Next, health experts are warning that nations could be giving up too soon in the fight against the pandemic. Many are looking forward to a time when the virus will be endemic and we can just live with it. And certain policies have already begun to reflect that. Joel Achenbach, science reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for why experts say it's not time to let your guard down just yet. Finally, this week we saw Microsoft make a huge deal worth $69 billion to buy video game company Activision Blizzard. While this will bolster their game catalog, Microsoft execs also see the acquisition as a pathway to the metaverse. The metaverse is so much bigger than just gaming, but it will still need gamers and first adopters to help it take off. Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We are going to continue to do everything we can with all the resources we can bring to bear to understand, again, what happened, uh, why, and uh, who might be responsible. And we are leaving no stone unturned. Joining us now is Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Shane. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about uh, one of my favorite topics. I mean, unfortunately, it's just so mysterious and and so many layers to all of this. I want to talk about Havana syndrome. We just got a uh, CIA report talking about this and basically said that there's no worldwide campaign by any foreign power behind this. Uh, you know, for a time, many were pointing fingers at Russia. There was another report that said this was uh, could have been the result of directed radio frequency attacks against people. And, and we were seeing, uh, you know, we had diplomats, spies, other personnel that were around the world coming down with these weird symptoms, concussion-like symptoms, dizziness, all this stuff. And it's just been a big mystery. And the CIA is saying now, well, they don't think anybody is really behind it. So, Shane, what are we hearing with this? Yeah, and it's important to note, too, that they're saying they don't think anybody's behind it at what they call, the words they use were a sustained global level. And if you kind of unpack what that means, as you pointed out, there have been many, many of these cases all around the world. They've actually been reported on every continent except Antarctica. Uh, so it's basically everywhere. The CIA has examined more than a thousand reported incidents. And what they're saying is that they don't see like a foreign power being responsible for all of those and kind of going around the world and targeting people. What they do find is that the majority of those thousand plus cases, they can attribute the symptoms that people are reporting to some kind of medical condition or some kind of environmental factor. So they can basically say, yeah, we have something that we can define that's wrong with you. Then the question is what happens to all those other people whose illnesses they can't explain. And now what the agency is doing is focusing on a handful of these, about two dozen of them, that they're going to kind of 
of investigate further. And for those, they're not saying that it couldn't be a directed energy weapon or the Russians. They're just saying they don't know for sure. And there's no patterns. They're kind of leaving it open. So we went from kind of having the possibility that the Russians were, you know, not to be blithe about this, but running around the world with ray guns, making people sick. They're saying that's not happening. But there could be like individual cases where the Russians were using some kind of weapon to attack people, but they just don't know yet. The CIA has no firm conclusion on that. As a reminder, this started in Cuba in 2016. That's why they call it Havana syndrome, where diplomats started experiencing these symptoms. And the twists and turns that the story took, people thought it might have been cicadas or other grasshoppers, mm-hmm. something that were crickets. You know, crickets that were making the noise and, and causing people right. to, to feel these symptoms. And so we've gone all this way now. Now we're getting to this point. Yeah, and I think that for a lot of people who have experienced symptoms, and we should be clear, for some of these people, there's no doubt there's something wrong with them. I mean, they are having, in many cases, debilitating symptoms that have no apparent cause. But I think this this latest update has made some of them feel like they're not being taken seriously or that the government's possibly, you know, giving up on finding a root cause of their problem. And I want to be clear that, you know, CIA officials we spoke to yesterday, we want to make clear that that is not the case. They're not giving up. They're going to continue investigating. The reality is, though, is that there's no real clear cause for this. And as much as some people may believe that they're the victims of an attack by a directed energy weapon, there's just not been evidence of that that's been discovered yet. And it's really, really hard. The analysts who've worked on this, I've talked to them, who said, look, this is one of the hardest things we've ever had to do in our career. There's no pattern. There's no sort of connect the dots here that leads us to conclude, yes, this was definitely X, Y, or Z that's causing it. So it's very emotional. People are really suffering. They do credit the government and the CIA and the State Department for doing a much better job of getting medical attention and taking them seriously in the new administration. But that's not really getting them closer to answering what the cause of this problem is. Do we know when the last report of something like this was? Well, we saw reports uh, in the press as recently as like a couple of weeks ago. So, I mean, I think that these have been fairly consistent and ongoing. There was recently a big spate of reports coming out of Vienna, which is a major U.S. diplomatic presence, a lot of intelligence operations going on in Vienna. Uh, Notably, uh, on a recent trip that CIA Director Bill Burns took overseas, a a senior member of his staff became very ill. So these things pop up a lot. And I think what's difficult for the CIA, too, in that is that they they, they talked about this when when they spoke to us yesterday, is that they've encouraged people to come forward and report symptoms. And what has ended up happening is lots and lots of people have come forward to report symptoms that are explicable by some some other means, right? So you've kind of flooded the system with noise, frankly, of, of, you know, when you're trying to find the signal. And that's to be expected, I suppose, when you tell people to come forward if you're experiencing symptoms. And remember, these are symptoms that are pretty common. I mean, headaches, ringing in the ears, I mean, dizziness, like from time to time, lots of people experience those. It's not as if these symptoms are so bizarre that you can point to them and say, aha, this is unusual. So that's made the challenge really hard as well. But, you know, honestly, like I still I've talked to, you know, privately to U.S. officials who still very strongly believe that at least in the small number of cases that it is a foreign actor. Many people still suspect Russia. But the CIA's report yesterday of trying to say, look, it's not Russia on a global scale kind of makes it hard to square that circle a little bit. It's like, okay, (laughs) well, then why do you think it's Russia on a small scale exactly? Well, we'll keep uh, monitoring this. As I mentioned, one of the big mysteries that we've been dealing with since 2016 when we first got these reports. Shane Harris, intelligence and national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. 
Bottom line on COVID-19 is that we're in a better place than we've been and have been thus far, clearly better than a year ago. We're not going to back, we're not going back to lockdowns. We're not going back to closing schools. Joining us now is Joel Achenbach, science reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, check in on what's going on with the pandemic right now. You know, for a lot of time, the conversation has been, we'll eventually get to this point where the COVID-19 disease is endemic. It's something we've learned to live with. Uh, Hopefully it's not infecting so many people and the severity of it has gone down. Right now, what we're seeing with uh, the Omicron variant is tons of people getting infected with it. Thankfully, we're seeing a lot more milder infections and nations around the world are responding in kind, you know, saying, hey, maybe it's time to start living with it. In the United States, we're getting a piece of that also. But some disease experts are still saying we might be giving up too soon. We still need to fight really hard against the virus. So, Joel, what are we seeing with all this? Well, there's no unified global response to this. Different countries have different strategies. Here in the U.S., different states, different communities have different strategies. And you probably know people who some are still being very, very careful. They're staying at home. They're not going out much. And others are like, hey, I give up. If the virus is going to get me, it's going to get me. You see such a wide variety of reactions. And one thing that the experts are telling us is it's not yet endemic. It is still very much of an epidemic. For example, here in the U.S., lots of people are getting sick. You don't want to get this virus if you can help it, because when we say mild, that's a technical term, meaning you're not in the hospital. But you probably know people who've had mild cases and they were sick, right? So there's a lot of concern that people, I say concern, some of the experts, including at the WHO, told us, hey, you know, this whole let's just live with the virus thing that you're hearing is premature. You know, we're not there yet. Let's keep taking common sense measures to prevent the spread of the virus. And so what are we seeing in some other countries with regard to this? Because we're looking at places like Australia, who uh, has a really, really high vaccination rate. We were talking about herd immunity for a long time, right? They got about 80 to 90 percent of their population that's vaccinated. In other places like South Africa, they're about close to 80 percent, but not necessarily vaccinations. They're close to that number because that's how many people have gotten coronavirus there. That's right. So talk about playing three-dimensional chess. You've got the vaccinated, you've got the previously infected. Now you have different variants. I mean, some people in South Africa got infected with the beta variant, which interestingly enough had at least one of the key mutations we also see in Omicron. In uh, a lot of the world, people got Delta or they got uh, infected by the Alpha variant or the original, you know, Wuhan strain. So the immunity landscape out there is very complex. What we, we know is that vaccinations are good. People should get their shots. Boosters help. But because the shots are based on the original strain of the virus, When Omicron comes along and you're exposed to it, your wall of immunity is not as good because Omicron has these mutations that make it a more slippery target, you know, know, these immune escape uh, or immune evasion mutations. The point being is that different places have different policies. In Australia, they had a zero COVID policy up to a point. They said, hey, we've done the best we can. We've got our people vaccinated by and large. 
So we were going to ease some of the rules and restrictions, not for Djokovic, <laughs> you know, because he violated the rules. But, right. they are, you know, so they're, they're shifting tactics a little bit. South Africa, the same thing. They actually eased some restrictions uh, last month uh, in the wake of Omicron, where they decided, you know, we don't need, I, I don't know the precise restrictions, but we don't need to adhere to quite the kind of uh, measures we had before. And, of course, we see it in the U.S. If you, if you think about the fact that although the Biden administration was pushing vaccinations and boosters and testing, that was true before Omicron. Uh, somewhere along the line, the decision was made, that, you know, we don't, we don't have either the political capital or the public will or the desire to tell people, hey, you know, your schools need to be closed. No, right. the schools are open, by and large, with a few exceptions, because people know kids need to be in, in school learning. So we have shifted to a different kind of pandemic than we were in a year ago or 21 months ago. Now, the new goal, right, seems to be to reach that endemic level where we where we can live with it. But who is going to make that call? When will it be? And we're seeing some shifting in how we'll create policies around it, too, because we're going to start getting away from case counts and start relying on other numbers like hospitalizations to start shaping those policies. You know, all pandemics end and they end kind of the way we're seeing it right now. If you look at the the infection numbers, they're really they've been really, really high the last few weeks. I mean, crazy numbers. I mean, you know, maybe up close to 10 million people infected at once. But there has been some decoupling from the hospitalization numbers, which are, which are very, very high, but not as high as they would have been a year and a half ago or last winter, given the number of infections. So it's a milder disease for most people, either because of something innate in the virus, this variant of Omicron, and just how it grows in your body, or because so many people have a level of immunity from vaccines or from, um, and the vaccines, you know, they really do keep you from going to the hospital usually. If you have an underlying condition or if you're very, very old or, you know, you're, you have immunosenescence, you know, maybe they don't work as well. And that is a concern too. If people right. just let it rip, they're just allowing the virus to spread too easily and eventually it will reach the most vulnerable people it will reach the people who are immunosuppressed immunocompromised and, and elderly and have other conditions and that's you know if you look at the the death toll i don't know i, I guess i it's getting up close to two thousand people a day it's very high it's not as where it was a year ago a year ago right now we were close to four thousand a day if if i recall correctly so this is how it winds down. It's slowly yeah. and fitfully, but not all at once. And I don't think that most experts would say, don't just abandon all you know precautions. Take it seriously still. Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. In gaming, we see the metaverse as a collection of communities and individual identities anchored in strong content franchises accessible on every device. Joining us now is Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Happy to be here. Well, we saw a huge deal go down earlier this week when Microsoft 
said that they were going to be buying uh, Activision Blizzard, the video game giant, for about $69 billion. This was a cash deal. Right away, people said this is going to bolster Microsoft and their gaming library. You know, they have their uh, Microsoft Game Pass for the Xbox, and uh, they said this could be further their ambitions for being kind of a Netflix for gaming and things like that. But the other part of it, too, is it uh, really bolsters Microsoft foray into the metaverse, what we've been hearing a lot about. They had a investor and media call shortly after the deal was announced, and they announced that thing only lasted 15 minutes, and they announced the metaverse more than 10 times, showing how big of an important part this could be about it. So, Sarah, tell us a little more about it. Sure. Well, right now, there's a lot of hype around the metaverse. We, we saw this in October when Facebook changed its name to Meta Platforms to reflect interest in the metaverse and, and being a leader in it. And we've seen another a number of companies that call themselves metaverse companies and their shares have been rising. And so what we think here is that Microsoft, you know, has a HoloLens, which is an augmented reality system. And the company has a very good stable of, of video games. But with Activision Blizzard, it's acquiring games that are very metaverse-like. They have these games like World of Warcraft have these really rich virtual landscapes and people walk around as avatars and they buy virtual goods. And uh, that's a, a lot a lot like what we can expect of the metaverse. I mean, it's essentially the next evolution of the internet. The belief is that it's going to be so immersive that we'll spend a lot of our time in there and it'll feel like we're meeting up with people really far away, but it'll feel like we're in the same room. And video games are already kind of going down that path. And so Microsoft sees this deal as an opportunity to get closer toward that realization. And the metaverse can be so much bigger than just what gaming is. But a lot of experts are saying you're going to need those gamers. You're going to need those people who are already on these virtual worlds to really push that into the next level. Right. I mean, gamers are uh, known to be early adopters of new tech and they are so comfortable behind a keyboard or a controller. And so um, for them, it's very natural and getting them sort of used to the idea of uh, spending more time in virtual worlds and becoming uh, having more immersive experiences uh, is sort of a natural fit. And the hope is that they'll help populate the metaverse and start using it for reasons beyond just gaming, perhaps for social reasons or, or see other benefits and then draw their friends into it and, and help it grow. But it's, you know, gamers, there are a large bunch of people who play games, but um, they're still, you know, a minority of the global population. So it's hard to say whether or not they will actually help drive adoption of the metaverse, but it's certainly possible. We're just seeing so many companies putting a lot of time and effort into what the metaverse can be. Even the Microsoft chief said, you know, they don't think there's going to be a single centralized metaverse. They're looking at different platforms, all sorts of places. So there's going to be a lot of different companies working on a lot of different things related to this. Exactly. Um, I mean, the, the thought is that just like um, all the businesses we have today at some point develop websites and then some of them develop e-commerce presence. We can imagine companies doing the same thing in the virtual world. They'll have virtual replicas of their stores or their offices or their schools, or we've already seen virtual replicas of concert venues. And so we'll just, uh, the expectation is for more of that, and it'll take a lot of time to get there, to have the infrastructure built. And then, of course, just the onboarding of, of people getting used to using that technology and spending time in these worlds. And like you said, it is the expectation that there'll be multiple metaverses or multiple virtual worlds and uh, interoperability where we'll be able to go from one to the other and bring our same avatar with us, when, whether we're in one virtual world or another. Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. 
It's my pleasure to be here. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>